morning, Baraka. If you would uh, turn in your copy of God's Word to John chapter 6. Our message this morning is John chapter 6, uh, and the reading will be from verses 25 through 45. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from the heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on that last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread who came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he then say, I came down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Good morning, church. Let's pray before we start. 
Father, we are grateful that we have this opportunity to meet this morning to not only talk about you, to sing to you, to give to you the honor, the worship, the praise, the adoration you deserve, but now in this moment also to hear from you, to be told by you through your word what you would have for us. We pray that the Holy Spirit that caused the writings of these words thousands of years ago would also be in this room within us helping to illuminate and help us understand what you would have from these words, what they mean, what they say about you and what they say about us so that we might be changed. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last time I was here with you, I uh, began a series, uh, I, I think it's a series, on the I am statements. The series depends on how long I keep coming back, and it, it could be short, it could be long, and uh, there are mixed thoughts in that. I, I can appreciate you wanting either one, to be honest, but uh, in John, <clears throat> last time we actually started in Exodus, where, where God himself, through the angel of the Lord, said, I am who I am, I am, in John three, or excuse me, Genesis 3. Well, um, Moses, Moses got that introduction to God through that very famous name. But as Jesus goes on, particularly in the book of John, he identifies uh, himself as I am, and eight times he says I am, and then he compares himself to, to something else as kind of a metaphor. For instance, this morning we're going to look at him talking about his salvation, and he could have said, I save people, but he didn't. He used the metaphor of bread, and he says, I am the bread of life. However, the way he says it, the way he says it, and um, how he went about it is a, little bit, is a little bit strange. If you look at verse 35, where Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. Um, I'm, I'm looking for the remote control. Do I control this? Ah, great. Thank you. So, in, um, in, in, if you're looking at this in Greek, and I know you guys, some of you hate when I, I've already done this once to you, and before I, you, I had you remember your Hebrew, now I'm going to have you remember your Greek. But, but when somebody in Greek wants to say, I am, they would normally write or say the word, emi, which is one word, emi, but it means, I am. So Jesus could have said, emi, the bread of life. And that would have worked, but it also would have been a little bit unusual because there's, there's a more common way to say it at that time. He could, have, he could have said, ego, the bread of life. And if he said, ego, the bread of life, ego means I. We, we get our word ego, ego. It's sort of similar. Ego, the bread of life. He could have said that. It means I, and it says, I, it would be I, bread of life. But in that day, in that time, they assumed the word am or be or are. So it, it would have sounded like to them, he said, I am the bread of life even though to us it looks like I bread of life. Well, however, Jesus didn't say, I am the bread of life, or the true vine, or the light of the world in that way. He, he did it by saying, uh, he did not say, ego, bread of life. He did not say, me the bread of life. He said, ego, me the bread of life. 
And what he's doing is, is he's emphasizing something. It would have sounded like to them that he said something like, I am, I am the bread of life. And it would have just sounded unusual, just like that sentence sounded unusual to you with repeated emphasis. However, uh, you, you could say he's emphasizing he, he himself. He says I twice in that. But it's more than just kind of a weighted emphasis. When he says that, he says it like this because those who read the scriptures in Greek and knew exactly what the phrase was from Exodus, they read it, they read it in Greek from Exodus 3. They hear Jesus saying, ego ami, and they know that he is saying that he is something, that he is more than he was just saying, I am bread. He's identifying with what Moses heard. And he's making a correlation. And so the emphasis is not just on the bread or the door or, or the metaphor. It's also the emphasis is on, I'm talking like that person talked to Moses. And that would have sounded strange. I want to see how that plays out in our passage. So we've heard the passage read. And in this context of this passage, we're starting here in this verse. But I want you to remember what happened before. Uh, before Jesus, uh, just to jog your memory, Jesus was um, on the, uh, he was on the other side of, of a lake, and he was uh, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, it's called both things, and he was preaching, and he fed over 5,000 people as he talked to them. It was the time where the child's lunch was there. They had the fish, they had the loaves that the, the child uh, produced out of his lunch. Jesus multiplied them and fed this incredibly large crowd, and the people knew that they saw something amazing. They immediately, if you look back at verse 14, say, this is truly a problem that's come into this world. In 15, they want to make him a king. And so um, instead of going along that line of thinking, Jesus immediately goes up into the hills near the lake by himself. So he removes himself from this crowd that wanted to make him king and declare him all this that he was. Well, he left and went up into the hills, and the, and the disciples um, waited for him. And then when... Uh, uh, when it became clear that he wasn't coming back down very quickly, they got in a boat and be began crossing the Sea of Galilee. And uh, so they're going back home uh, towards Capernaum without him. However, when they're in this boat a few miles out, a storm comes up. And Jesus walks across the water, gets into the boat, and the boat immediately arrives at Capernaum. And verse 22 says, the next day the people who were in the crowd realized Jesus didn't get in it on the far shore. They didn't see Jesus get in the boat, but they see him where they shouldn't expect to see him. And so they didn't see him leave, they didn't see him get in the boat, and yet here he is on the other side of the sea at Capernaum. And uh, they, that was amazing. They had, so the day before, they had eaten the fish, they had, they had eaten the bread, and, and now they realize Jesus must have done something else miraculous to get where he is. And, and uh, they've already wanted to make him prophet and king, and so now he's just blowing their mind. And they knew they had somebody special, and they walk up to him, and they say what you've already heard, starting in verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? 
And Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Now, they are interested in finding out how Jesus got there ahead of him. They left him up in the hills, and they probably saw the disciples row off, and now they find him here. How did you get here? Well, Jesus ignores the question, and he changes the subject. And Jesus gets down to their motives, and a lot of the following conversation has to do with why do these people care? You know, what's behind this? And, and so Jesus ignores the question, and he cuts straight to the point. It's simple that the crowd followed Jesus because they wanted more food, right? That's, that's what Jesus says the motive is. The, the reason that's worth the conversation is because this is the wrong way to follow Jesus. This is the wrong reason to follow Jesus. In verse 27, it says that they were working for food that deteriorates and perishes when they ought to be pursuing things that endure and lead to eternal life. They're wasting their time. They're wasting their efforts. They're wasting their resources on things that will pass away. And I don't think there could be a better description or analysis of our culture today. People intently chasing things that are temporary at best, and there is one source of eternal food, Jesus, the Son of Man, will give this kind of eternal food because the Father has established this. God has set his seal, and it is a certain work of God, and this sounded good to the people of Capernaum because they're still not getting it. But in verse 28, therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who, is, who he has sent. So they said to him, what then do you want for a sign so that we might see and believe you? What, excuse me, what then do you do for a sign that we might see and believe you? What work will you perform? Our father ate the manna in the wilderness. It is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. So they heard Jesus say, work for the eternal food. So they ask, what are the works of God? How do you get this kind of eternal food? And Jesus replied that the work you have to do, the thing to do, is believe. It's simple. You exercise faith in the one whom God has sent, and in the context, that's obviously Jesus. That's obviously Jesus. And in verse 30, the people imply, well, they could do that, they could believe if he would just give them a sign. Something to signify that he was the one they should believe in. Give us a sign and we'll see what happens. Now, let's talk about signs for a minute. There's a sense in which their request for a sign was logical. There's a sense in which their call for a sign was illogical. And there's a sense in which this is a useless request either way. The way it's logical is that they ask for a miraculous sign to confirm what Jesus was doing and saying. 
to confirm that Jesus is who he says he is, let's have a sign. And that's how signs work in the Bible. Somebody comes up and says something that is questionable, unbelievable, a claim of some kind, a prophecy of some kind, and then after saying that, or even before saying it, a sign, a miracle is done, and the miracle validates the word. And so there's a sense in which these people are asking for this to happen. You remember, um, you know, back in the chapter uh, in Exodus, Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells Pharaoh something, and Pharaoh says, you know, I don't know about it, and then Moses shows him a sign. And then you see that he goes from, from, from Pharaoh saying, I don't know about this, to Pharaoh saying, I'm definitely not going to do this. And he gets sign after sign. And it's one thing to have to show the Egyptians that, but Moses had to show signs to the Hebrew people that he was who he said and God had sent him. And so Moses spoke for God and the signs verified it. And that, that is solid biblical language and understanding, biblical logic. When you say something from God, present a, uh, present a sign. That, way, that means that these people are asking for something very logical. However, there's a sense in which it's illogical. Because just yesterday, Jesus fed over 5,000 people from this crowd. And at that point, the same crowd acknowledged that he was from God, tried to make him king, called him a prophet. And on top of that, they knew that he miraculously traveled somehow to the city. And if they heard stories from the disciples, it was even more miraculous because they would heard he walked on water to do it. And, and so... Why ask for more signs? Hasn't there been enough authentication that just happened? They've heard the words, they've seen the signs. The question is, are they going to believe? And so there's a sense in which this is an illogical request coming from this crowd. However, there's also a sense in which this is a useless request. Because the problem with signs in Scripture most often is they don't work over the long haul. Typically, miracles do not inspire long-term faith. Did Pharaoh really need 10 miracles before relenting to obey? 10? He rejected 10 signs before his own son was killed in the 10th plague. Those signs were not that effective, even though they're incredibly impressive. Bad guys are not going to listen to God or put any weight in signs. They're just not. But what about good guys? Well, in Judges chapter 6, Gideon meets with the angel of God. The angel of the Lord stands right in front of him and told him to lead Israel against the oppressive Midianites. And Gideon becomes convinced, this is the angel of the Lord, I'm to do that. He recognizes it's the angel of the Lord, he wants to worship God, and, and, and he goes back home and he whips up this huge meal as a sacrifice and brings it to the angel of the Lord. And he puts it on the ground, and the angel of the Lord consumes it with an explosion, a fireball, something, but boom, eats the meal right? And so it, it was immediately consumed, and then the Lord disappeared. And after he had left, Gideon said, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But if you go down into the next paragraph in verse 36, Gideon's unsure 
and wants another sign from God. And, and so he said he would lay out an animal fur. And if the fur is wet uh, on top, but the ground is dry, then I'll know it was the Lord. Next day, that's exactly what happened. And Gideon was like, well, yeah, that, that is confirming, but let's try it the other way. And so the next day, the, the fur is dry and the ground is wet. And that would prove the Lord is going to deliver, right? Now, I'm not trying to be critical of Gideon for wanting more and more signs. And I'm not trying to be critical of the Lord for stooping down to pass all these tests that Gideon gives to the Lord. However, if manifestations of the supernatural were really a powerful sign, wouldn't the angel of the Lord blowing up dinner seal the deal? Isn't that enough? It made an immediate impression on him. And then it wore off. Right? And so my point is that signs and miracles rarely convince. And if they do, their impact wears off over time. Jesus makes the same point in Matthew eleven twenty three when he says this about the people in our chapter. The very people he's talking to. He says, and you, Capernaum will not be exalted into heaven, will you? You will descend into Hades. For if the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained till this day. See, if signs established faith, the people of Capernaum would be faith, more faithful than anyone. They had seen enough to convert the most wicked. However, signs do not often compel faith. And this... This is a repeated complaint of Scripture. You see this with the wilderness generation. They saw the Red Sea open up, they walked through on dry land, and then the Red Sea swallowed up their Egyptian enemies. They were led by a cloud and a pillar of fire. They ate miraculous bread. They ate miraculous meat. They drank miraculous water. They walked around in clothes and shoes that miraculously did not wear out. And yet they're known as the faithless generation. They're living in miracles every day. And so typically, people whose faith needs signs and wonders have a, tip, have a temporary faith that, that needs another sign, needs another wonder, and it's not really faith. And that's Jesus' point in verse 26. So what were these people from Capernaum after? They didn't really want confirmation because confirmation wouldn't work for them. Jesus spoke from God. They got that right yesterday when they responded to him. They were, they, they were sitting there asking for something they knew he had already done the day before. Look at verse 30. So they said to him, what do you do for, then, excuse me. So they said to him, what then do you for a sign so that you may see and believe that, that the work you do and perform? Our fathers ate, in the, ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus, could you do a sign so we could just believe in you? What could you do? Oh, I've got it. I've got an idea. You know, scripture says our forefathers ate bread out of heaven uh, in the wilderness, well, that would be delicious. I mean, impressive if you said something like that and did something like that. That would be really great. Why don't you just make some more bread for us? What do these people want? They want to eat again. They just want to eat again. 
Jesus is not going to feed them. However, he will teach them something. He's already mentioned the difference between perishing food and eternal food in verse 27. They referred to Moses feeding people in the wilderness, and Jesus decides to build a teaching on that story and continue the metaphor. Verse 32, then Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives light to the world. And so Jesus decides to stay with this idea of bread and pivot between these two scenes, the scenes of their forefathers in the wilderness and the scene that was developing right in front of him. And they were comparing Jesus to Moses, saying, Moses gave this, why don't you give this? And Jesus says, you've got it wrong. God gave the bread and God gives me. Jesus is not Moses. Jesus is the bread. They've messed up the metaphor. The bread was standing right in front of them that the Father has given. The question is, were they going to eat? Were they going to believe? Look at the verbs in verse 32. It's not Moses who has given you the bread of the heaven out of heaven, but it's my Father that gives you the true bread out of heaven. So God the Father is the giver in both scenes. He's given, Moses, he's given in Moses' day, and he gives in that day, and he continues to give today. And that's the similarity between the two scenes, is God is the giver. However, the contrast is the bread that perished in Exodus versus the true bread found here now in Jesus. Moses' manna was a daily blessing, but Jesus is the true bread who gives life to the world. Remember verse 27, Jesus already established there is food which perishes and food which endures for eternal life. Now he says the true bread that gives life to the world is me. You've got the comparison, right? Their response, they did not. They said, verse 34, then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. I mean, it's like, great, great. The true bread, we get it. That sounds delicious. Give us some of that. They're still not getting it. They're missing the point of the metaphor. They're still stuck on food. They're still stuck on present needs, not spiritual needs, right? Material needs, not spiritual needs. And Jesus circles back in verse 35 and makes it more plain, but he does not drop the metaphor. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And Jesus draws a straight line from the metaphor to himself, and now we have a fuller picture. The Father gives the bread out of heaven. Jesus is the bread of life. The responsibility of the person is to come and believe in Jesus. He couldn't have said it more clearly. He extends it. He says that the bread, when consumed, puts an end to hunger. It puts an end to to thirst, Jesus is telling them, I am what you need. Stop fixating on this other kind of bread. I am what you need. 
He is the true gift of God that satiates their desires. And if they come to believe in him, they will know that satisfaction. The accusation of verse 36 is awful. That ought to disturb us. Because they've come, they've seen, and yet they will not believe. And Jesus turns from that to describe his mission. That this is exactly what he's here for. To be that bread. And this is how Jesus sees his role and responsibility starting in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given to me, I lose nothing, but I raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is on a mission. He has a purpose. He's responsible for certain people. Verse 37, it says, The Father gives the Son a group of people, and that group of people will come to Christ. And Christ will receive those people. He won't turn any away. So that verse 37 seems to describe almost like a handoff between God's supervision, God the Father, and giving it to God the Son to supervise this group of people. And the handoff is the people who come to the Son. God gave them, they come, Jesus receives them all, keeps them all, and then if you look at verse 39, raises them all up on the last day. That's the will of God, that's the mission of Christ. And in verse 39, it is his job to raise those people up on the last day, and that day must be the eschatological day, the last day, the day of the Lord, when, when this time on earth is over. Jesus is going to ensure that everyone who came to him is going to be, is going to be there and delivered into heaven with God in eternal life. That's his responsibility. That's his job. And, and this has many implications. And let me just lay out one that I mentioned last time we were together. If the Father's will is for Jesus to bring home his people, and the Son's purpose is to complete the Father's will and to lose no one, and, and Jesus' intention is to raise each of them up at the end without exception, let me ask you, Christian, how are you going to fall away from your salvation? If you're saved, how are you going to fall away from your salvation? Which member of the Trinity will fail you? Will Jesus fail in his mission? How is your salvation dependent on your obedience, your morals, your performance, your spiritual intensity, or your warm glow about God? We have the work of the Father and the Son, and in other passages, the Holy Spirit. How is it that he will not raise you up on the last day when that's exactly his mission? Christian, that can't happen. He can't fail. And if you condense it down to one sentence, I know of no better purpose statement than verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds his Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on that last day. However, 
There's a danger here if you look at verse 40 and then look at verse 36 again. In verse 40, Jesus gives this incredibly wide-open invitation and encouragement that everyone who beholds and believes will have eternal life. The offer is to everybody who will listen. And yet in verse 36 is a sad statement. These people to whom he's now speaking, who know him, they've seen him, they've heard him, their exposure to Jesus is not their problem. The problem is they won't believe. They have seen, yet they do not believe. And that's sad. In fact, the information they had seems to cause the opposite of what you might expect and have hoped to happen. Because this conversation starts off with, with a spiraling downward to this point. Most of the people react against Jesus instead of drawing near to him. Look where it goes in 41. Therefore the Jews were grumbling about him. That's not belief. The Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came out of heaven. They were saying, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he not now say, how does he now say, I've come down out of heaven? Jesus answered to them and said, do not grumble among yourselves. See, they thought Jesus was making too much out of Jesus, <laughs> right? They knew him. They knew his mama. They knew his daddy. And he's claiming to come from God in heaven when they know him. How's he coming, claiming to come from God in heaven when he is born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth? Well, these, these verses show that they're getting more hardened to him. They're starting to make arguments against him. They're not getting closer in belief. And this often happens. That when Jesus talks, some people hear him and are drawn to him. Others hear the very same thing and start to build up a defense against responding to him and then an offense against what he's saying. I had a friend who says the same sunshine that melts butter will harden bricks. And that seems to be what happens when Jesus speaks. Some people come towards him and some react against him. And there's a perspective on Jesus' work that seems to explain this. It says that a person can respond to an offer of Jesus and come to him or not. It's an act of their free will. Uh, this, this theory would say Jesus came. He provided a potential salvation for everyone by offering himself. And yet salvation is not certain for anyone or for for everyone could refuse it. I mean, it might be possible that nobody responded in faith to Jesus. And this perspective believes that it is a potential salvation, but not a certain salvation that Jesus offers. And what this salvation depends on is your will. Your free will needs to choose Jesus. And whether he's a savior or not depends on your will. Jesus offers it freely, but your will decides if you will follow. This is probably the perspective of most Christians around us. But this perspective has already been challenged in verse 40, when Jesus said that he was on a mission. God had given him some people, and he was determined to raise them up on the last day. That doesn't sound like it's potential salvation for everybody. That sounds like it's certain salvation for these people. It's definite salvation for these people. 
And that perspective is going to be challenged, uh, challenged again by what Jesus says in 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In verse 44, those who come to Jesus will be drawn to Jesus by God. Moreover, they're the same ones who will be with him on the last day. Verse 45 develops the idea. Jesus quotes from Isaiah 54 here. That, that Isaiah 54 predicted God would do this. It says God is going to teach some people. And he's going to teach these people to obey him and follow him. And in the context, it's saying that the Father would instruct people, and from that instruction, they would come to Christ. That's the context that Jesus is using that passage in. And so those who come to Jesus have been taught by God. But from, from the Father's perspective, notice how these two things come together. God sends Jesus for the people, and then God draws the people and teaches the people to come to Jesus. Right? He teaches them. And so he both sends Jesus on a mission and draws the people to Jesus. However, from our perspective, that's not how it looks. It doesn't feel like those two things are happening. It feels like one thing is happening. Right? In verse 40, it says, we behold the Son and believe in him. And in verse 44, it says, we are drawn by the Father. Both those things are happening, but we only perceive the first one. We note the experience of believing. Yes, I am believing. I do believe. I do trust and I do follow. I experience all that. What I don't see is the Lord directing me that way. The Lord teaching me that way. The Lord drawing me that way. So if you're a Christian, think about how your salvation happened. I bet it, uh, um, well, for sure you heard about Jesus and believed in him. For sure that happened. But at the same time, you probably wouldn't describe it as the Father was drawing me to Jesus. You probably didn't see it as the Father teaching me about Jesus. You probably thought you were making an uninfluenced choice from your will to trust Christ. And verse 44 says that the Father was in the background. Right? Verse 44, the word unless introduces a necessary condition. If there's no drawing by the Father, there's no coming to the Son. If you came to Christ, the Father drew you there. Look down at verses 63 through 65. We didn't read these, but it explains a little bit more. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were and who did not believe and who did who, and who it was said that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. Jesus says that the fact that God has drawn people to Christ explains the unbelief coming, becoming belief. Verse 64 says that there were some in the crowd that had watched Jesus, had seen the miracles, and did not believe. Moreover, the second part of the verse says, this, ex this explains Judas. How do you explain Judas following Christ for those years, and he was the one 
he described here as the one that would be, was to betray him. How does Jesus walk with Jesus for three years and then betray him for some money? The answer is in verse 63. The spirit gives life and the flesh profits nothing. Like every disciple, Judas was born a sinner and kept sinning. When the other disciples beheld Jesus and believed in him, Judas didn't. He traveled with Jesus, but he didn't believe in Jesus. Why? The father didn't draw him towards Jesus, and being dead in his sins and trespasses, Judas could not go without God giving him spiritual life. So Judas was never a believer and would not eat a bread of eternal life, but took a payoff for his betrayal. What verse uh, 64 calls profitless flesh. Excuse me, profitless flesh. Now, this is an unpopular thought, and people don't like it because it sounds like God is violating our free will. Their point is, if this is what's going on in the background, then God is drawing people to Christ who may not want to go to Christ on their own. Or even worse, there may be people who want to come to Christ, but the Father will not draw them to Christ. Right? And, and that seems to imply that they can't get saved because the Father's not drawing them. And in both cases, it seems like God has violated their free wills, right? That if violate may be too strong of a word, maybe coerced their will. And, and it's, it, either way, it seems like a loss of free will. But I want to speak a minute thinking about free will, and I want to do it by a couple hypothetical situations and have to do with the way we make decisions, Will is the part of the way we decide. How do we decide for Christ? How do we decide for anything? Okay. Well, this is a situation I thought of. You're going to have to use some imagination here. But I, Pastor Perkins, uh, enjoy playing basketball. It is my favorite sport to play. I enjoy watching baseball much more, but I enjoy playing basketball. And suppose I was in a game and you were in the stands, and you wanted my team to win, and I got the ball right underneath the goal. And what would be some of my options to choose from? I could, in fact, do a layup. I'm right there. Just, just take the shortest shot you can imagine and make it. In the key, I'm right under the basket. I could, maybe if I was covered, dribble out and look for a better shot outside. I could pass the ball to somebody if I felt like I was covered. Right? Those are all options I have. How will I decide which one is best? Well, I'll look at the circumstances, and I'll look at my abilities, and I'll choose the one that I think is best. But you know what doesn't go through my mind? And you in the stands did not call for this. You should have. You should have screamed, dunk the ball. There's no higher percentage shot in basketball than dunk the ball. Now, why didn't you tell me to dunk the ball? I can think of three, four reasons you might not have said that. And I can think of three or four reasons why it didn't pass through my mind, right? See, no matter how free your will is, you can't choose to do something you can't do. I can have all the free will in the world, and yet my will is tied to my ability. Your will is tied to your ability. And it's not just me and my basketball problems in which that shows up. Let's think of the person who has the freest will of anyone you can imagine. 
How about God? Can God do anything he wants to do? He has certainly the most ability. He's the most ablest person with the fewest limitations of anybody I could imagine. So if anybody is free to do anything, it's God. Well, can God lie? No. It's who he is that limits him from lying. In fact, it seems that when he speaks, it becomes truth. <laughs> he establishes truth. I mean, it's crazy. He could say cows fly, and guess what? Cows would be flying around here. It wouldn't be a lie. It would be the truth. Well, what, what if you said, it's just a moral impossibility for God to lie. What if you told him, you know, uh, you're free. You have all the free nature. Why don't you, why don't you steal something? Can God steal something? Well, no. That would be immoral. It's against his nature. His nature will not allow him to do it. Plus, I mean, think about this. He created and owns everything. From whom will he steal? It's all his. It's not just a moral impossibility. It's a physical impossibility. And so, even though your choices are free... They're limited by who you are, and not just me, who is very limited. God is limited by who he is, that he will not sin. So if your choices are limited by who you are, who does Scripture say you are? Make sure I'm on the right. Yeah. From the beginning, we were evil. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and sin my mother conceived me. Genesis 8.21, And the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of a man's heart is evil from his youth. And whether it felt this way or not, I mean, you didn't feel like that, but as a sinner, you're in opposition to God. If you are a sinner, as you were born a sinner. Colossians 1.21 says, And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That describes you before salvation. Or Romans 8, 7 and 8. Because the mind is set on the flesh, is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it's not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. These people don't have a lot of ability as sinners. And you're thinking, well, maybe that describes my worst moments. But I can be pretty good at times. Jeremiah 13, 23 says, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then you also can do good who is accustomed to doing evil. Matthew 7, 18, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Proverbs 15, 9, the way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he, who, he loves one who pursues righteousness. So you're thinking, I must have made God happy in some way, right? Isaiah 64, 6 says, for all of us have become like one who is unclean, and all our, righteousness, all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments. And all of us wither like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Hebrews eleven six it says, and without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. My point is, if you don't have the ability to please God, you don't have the choice or the free will to please God either. It's not in your ability. 
If you don't follow Christ, these, belie- these verses are true about you right now. If you're a believer, these verses were true about you before Christ. So here's my question with all that being true about every sinner. How is every person going to behold the Son and believe in him? How is every person going to be able to do that? That's like expecting me to dunk and God to lie. For a sinner to free, freely choose to please God. Sinners on their own will can't come to Christ. The Father's going to have to draw them. He's going to have to teach them. Their will cannot choose against their nature. In fact, they're going to have to be saved. He's going to have to give them a new nature for that to happen. He's going to have to give them a new birth. He's going to have to put them to death in Christ and raise them up in the newness of life. He's going to have to break them out of their slavery to sin and give them a new master and a new Lord. It's Jesus Christ. That's the only way. How could a person like me Behold and believe in Christ without God teaching me, without God drawing me. It's impossible. And yet we're still uncomfortable with God violating our will, it seems like. Let me give you one more example, okay? Think about the idea of God going against our will, about him drawing us against our will. And I want to give you a second hypothetical analogy. Now, you guys don't know me, but I love chocolate ice cream, okay? And let's say your job was to come and bring me uh, two bowls of ice cream every day, one vanilla and one chocolate, and your job was to get me to eat the vanilla ice cream. I can tell you, as soon as you walked in the door with those two bowls, I'm picking chocolate 10 times out of 10 every day, okay? That's how hard your job is, okay? Um, I, I mean, quite honestly, you're, you're wasting your time scooping the vanilla. I know it's your job, but you're wasting your time, all right? Now, you decide to get creative, and you say, I'm going to make this joker pick vanilla, And so you walk in, you put the two balls in front of me, you pull out a gun and put it to my head, and you say, choose whichever one you want, but I think you better choose vanilla. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to enjoy that vanilla ice cream. Because you have changed my math. (laughs) You have changed the situation. And I still have my desires, but you know what? I have a new desire, and that new desire is to stay alive. And as long as you have that gun, I'm going to follow my deepest desire and eat that vanilla ice cream and stay alive, all right? I have no problem with that, and it will surprise you how quick my decision happens. Now, did I make a choice? Yes, I did. Did I act on my will? Yes, I did. Your gun made me reevaluate my desires and my preferences. And I decided that my taste for life was stronger than my taste for chocolate. And I honestly, honestly, preferred vanilla to dying. Honestly. But think about this. I'm still choosing according to my desires. The situation changed. And as the situation changed, my desires changed. Right? Now, did you coerce me? Man, you more than coerced me. You violated my will. That's not a choice that we would consider a a reasonable choice. 
The gun to somebody's head isn't the idea of a free choice. Now, this is an exaggeration, but if this is what you think of when you think of God coercing somebody or drawing them to Christ, I don't think that's the right picture. I don't think that's what's being described when the Bible says that God draws people to Christ or he teaches us to come to Jesus. It's more like this. Suppose you decide, okay, I won yesterday with the gun, but today I'm going to be more subtle. And the next day you come in with a bowl of vanilla and a bowl of chocolate, but you decide to take a different angle, and so you, you decided to put more vanilla in the vanilla bowl than chocolate in the chocolate bowl. So there's more vanilla, and then you brought some hot fudge out and put it on the vanilla and sprinkled some nuts on there and brought a cup of coffee with it. And now you said you could have the chocolate like you do all the time, or you could have the vanilla supreme, right? And guess what I'm going to do? I'm eating that vanilla supreme with a cup of coffee. You know, quite honestly, you had me at hot fudge, all right? And so with a smile, with a smile, I'm going to choose the vanilla supreme. Now, did I make a choice? Yes, I did. Did you violate my will? I don't think you violated it. Did you coerce me? Yeah, you did. You very much did. But everybody would say I had a reasonable choice, and it was my choice, and I worked on my desires. And we don't see the will as being violated in that situation. I was influenced by my will and my desires. That's more like how the Father draws us to Christ. We're not saying he violated someone's will in doing something they didn't want to do along the lines of holding a gun to their head. But what we're saying is God is drawing us to help us behold Christ. Seeing his value, the desired end of his free offer of us is an appealing thing. The Father awakens us to the way we were chasing after the bread that did not satisfy, and we changed our mind and chose the bread that gives life. And, and we were living in a way, such a way, those sinful conditions were true about us, and then God opened our eyes to all of that. We changed our opinion of Christ, our evaluation of Christ, and our preferences changed. Think about your own salvation experience. It probably went one of two ways. It probably, either, I'll bet, either I bet you were totally going on your way, not thinking about Christ at all, not wanting Christ, and then you heard somebody read or say something, you read something, so you read or heard something, somebody read to you, and God immediately made Jesus look plausible and desirable, and then fairly quickly you denied yourself, picked up your cross, and followed Christ. And if that was your story, I bet you can see that scene clearly, and I bet some of you might even remember exactly when it happened. Others of like, uh, like me, this is my story, said that, would say that we had a pretty complete exposure to Christ over a period of time, and it wasn't very compelling, and I wasn't very impressed. I was taken to church nine months before I was born. I was there all the time. I heard the stories of Christ all the time. I was, I, I just heard it over and over again. 
And I, they were interesting for a while, uh, but they were not compelling. And yet, over time, we find ourselves moving towards Christ. And, and if your story is like mine, you don't know exactly when it happened and exactly how it took place, but you know that someday you realize, I'm believing, I'm following, I'm worshiping. And it wasn't in a defining moment. I can't remember what it was. But there was a time where I could say I was definitely not doing this. And I was definitely not like this. And now I'm definitely like this. And I'm definitely doing this. And, and so what happened? Somewhere along the line, God changed my mind about Christ. And he did it in very natural ways, working with my own desires. And I can say I beheld the Son and I believed in him. Like verse 40 says. And at the same time, I believe the truth of verse 44 happened, that God had to teach me and show me. Now, I'm not offering our experiences as proof. I'm, I'm offering the Bible as proof, and our experiences kind of back that up, I think, right? Um, it's, it's what I see when I see people converted. Many people are offered the gospel, but think about this. Who actually comes to Christ? Who comes to Christ? Well, is it the rich people? Well, not really. There are a lot of poor Christians. And there's some middle-class Christians. And really, it's overall the whole economic spectrum come to Christ. Well, would you call these educated people? Well, not really. Maybe there are it actually seems there's like there's a lot of uneducated people that come to Christ as well, right? Some people are even illiterate and come to Christ. Would you call these very accomplished people who come to Christ? Some are, but I wouldn't say that's true of everybody who's a Christian. Well, what countries do they come from? Well, they come from every country. As a matter of fact, the more you spread the gospel, the more you find out there are Christians there. <laughs> And, and there seems to be a correlation with the spreading of the gospel and the making of Christians. Well, what language do these people speak who are Christians? Well, they speak all of them. How old are they when they are converted? Well, they're converted all over the age spectrum. Now, what's my point? Christians don't fall into typical demographics. And I think these are the, reverse, the result of verse 33, where it says, For the bread of God that is... For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. The whole world. He's a worldwide savior. He doesn't keep in demographics. The Father draws all kinds of people and Jesus saves all kinds of people. How do you explain such a wide attraction to Christ and a wide rejection of Christ that seems independent of any other factor in life? Well, because it's God who draws them. And in Romans 2.34, it says that, that when it comes to gospel issues, God does not show partiality. God isn't drawn to save one kind of person. He doesn't draw that person, that kind of person, to Christ alone or another. He isn't looking for certain kinds of people to save. He draws types of people to Christ. He teaches all kinds of people about Christ. Well, therefore... How can you decide the demographic key to market the gospel to? Well, we don't. 
The gospel is to be freely given to all kinds because God draws all kinds. God teaches all kinds, and all kinds behold Christ, and all kinds believe in him. And Jesus saves all kinds, and he will not lose anyone, and will raise up all kinds on the last day. Therefore, if you're not a Christian, you need to hear that Jesus freely offers himself to you right now. And you are free to believe, to trust, to follow, to eat this bread that satiates every need. I don't know, maybe you were like these people who were kind of focused on other things, job and and family and education and other things. Uh, I would just say those are things that don't satiate you. They don't satisfy. I would say, behold him. Think about him. Follow him. Believe in him. Trust him. I mean, last week you may have never even considered hearing, and today it's a possibility. Follow through in faith. Christians, there's something here for you as well. Since verse 33 says that Christ gives life to the world, and verse 37 that it says that anyone can come to Christ and no one will be cast out. Since verse 40 says that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And since verse 45 says that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Christ. Since 51 says that anyone who eats of the bread of life will live forever. And since that's all in chapter 5, why wouldn't we give the gospel to everybody who will listen to you? Everybody who will listen to you. Anyone who will listen to you. Why are you hesitant with that person? Over and over and over, Jesus gives a wide open invitation to come to him while knowing that not everybody will. Why isn't that our approach approach as well? A wide open invitation to everyone, knowing that some may not. Are you concerned that they may reject? Do you wonder if they are ready? Those aren't really our issues. Those have to do with what the Father is doing. He is teaching. He is drawing. We freely offer Jesus widely, and the Father draws them to Christ. Therefore, pray that that person would be compelled to go towards Christ. But at the same time, give them a free offer of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. We're thankful that Christ is the bread of life. We're thankful that he does what he said he will do. That he will satisfy. Those of us who are saved have known him to be a good savior. We look back knowing that the best thing we ever did was trust and follow Christ. We have that hope for all that we know and love as well. Lord, help us to extend your free offer of the gospel to everyone to give it in terms that speak the highest regard of Christ and the glory of you. I pray, Lord, for those who have heard and heard and heard but have not felt compelled that you would, in fact, move their heart this morning, that they would act in faith, that their desire would change and they would desire you, that they would desire your Christ. We ask that you would move minds and hearts, that you would... um, Take lips that have never confessed and make them uh, 
believe and testify of you and your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.